Hi everyone, welcome back to the last episode of 2020. Crazy how fast and slow <laughs> this year has gone, um, but glad to bring another season guest to the show in Bill Alcini. Bill Alcini is a mechanical and materials engineer who has worked in the automotive, small engine, refrigeration, exhaust sound, exhaust emissions, load bearings, and aviation industries. He has a BS in mechanical engineering focusing in dynamics, but he has a master's and PhD in the material science and engineering. Currently works for GE Aviation in the chief engineering track of the joining and heat treatment group. He specializes in inertial welding. He has worked at General Motors Research, Chrysler, Tecumseh Products, Federal Mogul, and NTN. He has published technical papers and holds many patents and trade secrets. AWS awarded him the annual gold medal for the paper that contributed the most to the field of welding. He is passionate and enjoys his work. He's very grateful because work has afforded his life's personal mission and has been instrumental in teaching him about life. Bill, welcome to EYC. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Engineer Your Career. I'm Brendan Timrak, joined with Troy. Hi. How you doing, Troy? Good, man. Really good. Really happy to be here. Really excited for the for next episode with another another big person in my life, another person that I, you know, I'm glad to be able to bring into the show. I think that's been one of the cool things about the show for me is looking back at my network and being like, who are some of those really awesome, influential people that I would love to have other people meet? And uh, another example of that, in addition to Tom from the previous episode, we have out um, Bill Alcini on the on the show today, and I'm I'm glad that you're here. Um, and so to start, Bill, we might as well just kick you off if you if you wouldn't mind just kind of starting us walking through how you got to where you got to today. Okay, thank you for uh, for having me here and letting me share my lessons learned and learned wisdom regarding the career choices that I made. I think we all believe a career affects our happiness and well-being, so it's important to make good choices. Um, when I started working, my recipe was something like just do something you enjoy, make as much money as I could. Uh, I desired fame, attention, and importance, but wouldn't admit to it at the time. I thought I could do anything, just a matter of learning. I could be skillful at anything I put my mind to. Um, I was willing to work hard at something that I thought was important. If I thought it was an important ingredient, then, then great. Otherwise, forget it. After working and living 40 years, I've learned there's some other facets and inputs uh, for happiness as well. I know now that I need a meaningful purpose or a mission apart from work to survive or accumulate wealth or, or status. I need to know and identify my talents, my strengths, and my weaknesses, um, and then accept those weaknesses, which leads to learning that I'm dependent on others. Um, and I need God's help and a relationship for truth. Uh, guidance and direction. So I'd like to share the stories through my career that taught me these lessons. And I would consider these defining experiences uh, that led me to the conclusions. As a child, I and everyone knew I was a gearhead. One example of that was when I was in grade school, I wanted to build a sled and my parents wouldn't let me use power tools. So I designed this, this sled, you know, all out of wood, steered everything, and in order to build this thing, I couldn't use power tools, so I took took a regular drill, motor drill, chucked up the bits, and just spun the thing by hand. Completely built this thing. My hands were, were blistered and everything, but I did it. And I was surrounded by people that really loved me. My, my father and mother were great. I grew up on a street, uh, one street with a bunch of kids who were all about the same age. We played sports all year together. We gathered each other up. and and we had a blast. I had just the perfect childhood. And those people, like my father, really cared about me and my mother really cared about me. So they were trying to guide and direct me. 
in high school, I took auto shop, wood shop, electronics, anything, any, any vocational kind of thing I could. And that's definitely where my bent was. When I got to be 16, I got my first car for $200. It was a rust bucket. Fixed that thing all up, sold it for 600, burnt oil like a, like a wild banshee. But that's just where I was. You know, I just was uh, just perfectly happy doing the technical things. I really didn't want to go to school. I didn't want to go to college. Um, again, I thought I was going to go with vocational track, but like I said, um, the people in my life that love me, they, they tried to steer me in a good direction. And my dad, my dad basically tricked me and he said, uh, Bill, you go to school, get your degree, and then you can do anything you want. So I, I listened to that. And with my interest in the technical, I didn't see any need for the language and writing skills. So I ducked pretty much all the writing classes and took the easy writing classes. I think mythology was what I took in high school. So when it got to be, you know, choosing a college time, my father worked for GM. I love cars. Uh, GM had a great reputation. So I applied to GMI, which became Kettering. So I applied. They rejected me because my SAT scores were so low in writing, uh, in English. So I decided to go to MTU <laughs> because I love the outdoor, the technical excellence, um, the fact that it was you know, not a high society. It was very practical, and it was it was a gearhead school, uh, and that really appealed to me. Okay, so at the same time, though, you're you you had kind of thought about vocational, and I think it's a challenge for a lot of engineers. And they're in high school. I mean, they they have a hands-on ab- ability. I mean, I think not, maybe not, definitely some of them. And it's like, well, what do I do with this? Do I go vocational? Do I do I go to school? And I and I think that's a a legitimate challenge to to make that decision, especially now. I mean, there's some weird politics on that decision now too, and stuff. I, I don't necessarily know, but I guess looking back on you, the the, what, the primary driver was was just your your father. I guess where the that that decision to not do vocational school was it largely just your father's input and your the people around you? I uh, yeah, I would say so. I didn't really know what they saw because like my father ended up in a technical field, but he never was able to advance like he wanted to. Not because he wasn't skilled or couldn't do it, but the piece of paper wasn't there. Gotcha. And um, in fact, just probably a couple of months ago, the guy I work with got laid off and, you know, he would attribute it to the same thing. Interesting. So would you, you know, a similar young person in front of you today, would you give similar advice? Well, I, I, I like what you guys are doing because I would say decide really, you know, take a look at these different layers and and levels that the piece of paper lets you get to. You know, if you think you're going to design something and you're going to have the big say-so in it, you're not going to if if you don't have the degree. If you're happy, you know, the engineer hands you a, a sketch and says, you know, draw this. If you're happy with that, great. But I don't think um, at that time, you know, I, I saw, well, the guy that builds the car, you know, the mechanic could build a car if he wanted to. That's how clueless I was in terms of really understanding what it took. And it wasn't, you know, really college itself showed me all the different things that went into it. Um, So having gone to school, that just gave me a much better insight of of what it takes to do some of the things I really wanted to do. Sure. And I think there is, though, that formal process on design validation. I mean, you see it for sure in like civil engineering, right? If you're going to certify a bridge or something like that, you have, a, have to have a master's degree. But that same analogy you can apply, I see it in pretty much all other industries of, of accepting design. You know, if if someone's going to certify a design, or not even formally, you know, not even like the 
the PE sense, but even just like a, a, a design engineer, yeah, it makes sense that you they, the people want to see a degree there, whether or not, to your point before, they have the technical skill. Like, I mean, there can be people that have the technical skill that don't have the degree, but unfortunately, it's how the world works. And so I guess we're just trying to kind of explain that for the listeners is it's it's how the world we live in works. And so if, you, if you're going to be the person wanting to be in charge of designs and stuff like that, it can be important. Well, I think, and too, I've seen it uh, in my lifetime, I've seen the progression that I think was always there, which was in every field, if you can design it without doing the calculations, you will. If you have the luxury of over-designing it, or you have the luxury of not really being scrutinized. But that's not our world today. Everything is designed right to the ragged edge in terms of every ounce of material, lower cost, whatever, that's all baked into it. That's the products that are competitive. And you need to know the basics, you know, to be able to do those analysis, you need to know the basics of the schooling, the theory, the physics, you know, whatever. So it's pretty much, it's gotten harder to try and do that just by, oh, well, you know, just, just draw it up and, and it's, that's good enough, you know, just overbuild it. Yeah, no, that's, that's a good point. So, so you decided to go to college. You said you're going to Michigan Tech. What, what's, how, how did that go? What, what's the next step in, in the journey for you, Bill? Well, I uh, went into mechanical engineering. I uh, didn't know what I wanted to specialize in. And then I took uh, Professor Shapton's class. And I don't know if he's still there. But he, uh, he was a dynamics specialist. And I really loved him. He was an extremely humble guy, very kind. And I was really impressed by his humility. He had narcolepsy. And he was known for falling asleep in class. Not because he didn't want to, not because he didn't try, but he used to tell stories about how his team used to go out and uh, do, you know, modals on uh, windmills that were 300 feet high, you know, and different stuff like that. And that just really got my interest going. So I decided to go off into that, that area. That's so amazing. So uh, hilariously, Brennan and I both had Shapton for vibrations it was <laughs> after he had retired and he would like come back and teach a random class on random semesters. And Brennan and I were l- lucky enough to have a, a similar experience where, yeah. We've heard that same story and it's about aw- the windmills. Yeah. yeah. And it's awesome. <laughs> what's, what's so cool about that, right? You listen back to your old educators they are super influential who are providing cool stories who make it entertaining. You know, it's not, it's not, he, he taught me how differential equations model vibration. That's what, you know, that's, that's not how it's remembered. It's remembered as these great stories. I think that's, I think that's awesome. I'm so glad to hear you because I recall it the same way when people are like, what, what's so great about Shapton's class? It's, it's the awesome stories. So I, I just, I think that's, that's awesome. I think it's really cool because those, those great educators, yeah, they feed you what you need to, but they make it fun. Whether that's well, or... they have the fun themselves. I mean, you can't you can't fake it, right? You can't decide I'm going to be an educator, and if you're not interested in it, just try and make it fun for the students. It's contagious, you know. You yeah. get excited about right. it, and your passion's going, and then people just kind of pick up. <laughs> right. Okay, so you're in Shapton's class, you're liking it. Sorry to interrupt, but I just yeah, that's awesome. So about this time, my high school sweetheart uh, rekindled the relationship after she dumped me when she went to college. And uh, she was in college for a couple of years, and both were. So we had this long-distance relationship for about a year, but she was really struggling. Uh, and I loved her, so I jumped through hoops and got a special got special permission to finish tech down at U of M, do my last year down at U of M, which just to me 
that's that's my priority. Relationships and a marriage vocation is a higher priority than my career. So that again, it was you know right from there, it was already directing things. Went ahead and finished up uh, school and got a job with Chrysler uh, in the sound and vibration department. And one of the first things I was there and there, I had to try and measure the torque on the engine mounts. And uh, uh, I asked one of the guys that was you know pretty sharp. He says, well, you know what you can do? You can take a fish scale and you can just attach it to the bumper and hook it to the wall and then put the car in gear and, and just use the moment arm for the wheels, you know, and, and you'll, you'll be able to figure out the torque. I said, oh, that's a great idea, you know. So I got the fish scale and went down in the lab and hooked it up. You know, that darn guy got everybody in the lab and they were looking through the windows laughing at me. And, you know, I, so anyway, the, the director, the department head heard about this, you know, and he pulled me aside and he said, he says, Bill, you know, he says nine out of 10 times people are going to say what you're doing isn't going to work and stupid. But he says, just remember this. It's that one out of 10 times that pays for everybody's salary around here. And that always stuck with me, which, you know, the lessons learned was uh, don't worry about the criticism. Just do the right next, the next right thing. So they were planning. So I, I was working for them. I was really enjoying it. And they were planning on moving me into their, they had a little advanced uh, research group in the department. But about this time, I, I, you know, fear and second guessing myself was constantly pushing me. Uh, is my performance good enough? Is my job secure? Feeling that I wanted to learn more. If I learned more, I'd be better. If I knew more, I'd be more valued and more secure in my job. And I love the innovative type stuff. I loved innovative designs and they were always heavily dependent on materials. So I thought if I know if I knew materials better, I could come up with better designs. So I went ahead and started a master's degree at night. And while I was doing that, U of M offered me a teaching assistantship. And about this time, my wife finished school and she was working full time. So I went to school full time to do the master's. About the time I was finishing uh, GM research, well, when I was finishing, I was looking for a job. The GM research lab offered me a, a job closer we were in Ann Arbor, and the research lab job was in Warren, which is closer to where I grew up. And we had no ties at that point in the Ann Arbor area. It was a great job, excellent career potential. So I said, okay, sure. So I was going to do that. Well, I had no plans past the master's. And again, this is a guy who's kicking and screaming about school. Just let me get on with, with designing things. But I had a, a Christian brother who told me God wanted me to continue and get a Ph.D., and I did not want to. And so I kind of threw this ridiculous, uh, I kind of tested God with this ridiculous test. First of all, I said, well, I'm just going to take the, the graduate entrance exam without studying. And most people take off a year of school at that time anyways. Most people took off a year and they just studied to, do, to pass this thing. So I went ahead cold and took it and I passed it. And just to, to show you that's not normal for me. I went and started talking to one of the professors, you know, figured, well, I'll talk to him about a thesis project. So I went up and talked to him and, and started talking to him. And as usual, he gets real frustrated with me. And uh, he said, oh, he said, wait a minute, wait a minute. He says, why are we talking about this? You have to pass the qualifying exam first. And I said, I did. And he literally got up out of his chair, stuck his nose six inches from my nose. And he said, you passed the qualifying exam? I said, yeah. And he just threw himself back in his chair and he shook his head like that. So then the other obstacle was we started having a family. We were going to have our first child. And I couldn't see spending the time and money 
time away from them uh, because, you know, going to school and full full time work. Uh, I didn't want my wife to be working. Uh, we decided we wanted to raise our children. So um, I said, well, I really, you know, I, I can't I just can't see doing this. Was your master's a research-based master's, or was it coursework only, or a mix of research and coursework? It was uh, research. It was a thesis with that, too. Yeah. Okay, so you had exposure to the full research side, and you, I mean, you knew what life would, would have been kind of like as a PhD student. Yeah, and, you know, when I was doing the master's, again, I was going full-time, so I wasn't really, you know, taken away from anything important. But, you know, with doing that, it would have been uh, because my wife wouldn't be working it'd be working full time and going to school. You know, so I said, no, I'm not willing to do that. Plus, it was an hour drive from Ann Arbor into Warren at that point. So I went ahead and said, oh, I'm just going to accept this. Oh, that was it. And I found out while I was working at the research lab, pretty much any of the primary positions, everyone had a Ph.D. So I, I knew you know, I pretty much had uh get that degree if I wanted to stay there. So I found a job in uh, Ypsilanti at Hydromatic, GM Hydromatic, which was a transmission plant, and uh, was going to leave. And the research labs told me, no, no, we don't want you to go. So I came up with a proposition for them. <laughs> I said, well, if, if you let me pick a topic that you're interested in and you have M agrees to, I'll just work that topic. So I worked full time, but it was basically just working full time to do my thesis. So they went for that, and uh, I went ahead and, and uh, did did that. It was in welding. Um, when that work was done, uh, wrote a paper from that work, and that paper won the highest award that the American Welding Society gives every year for the greatest uh, contribution to the welding industry. So I did some more time at GM to kind of pay back my education and took a job closer to home, which was Ann Arbor at that time, the better care for my family. Again, the priority there is uh, the goal of marriage and, you know, my vocation as a family man and doing God's work because we were involved in a community, Christian community at the time there too. So I ended up at a place called Tecumseh Products. They did refrigeration compressors and small engines. And that was doing material evaluations, quality control, failure analysis, you know, for all the company plants and the development departments, the engineering department. Um, and I struggled to crank out, you know, this is, we had to crank out these reports, do these analysis and, and try and do, tw you know, 20 different things. The volume work was high. Me and another colleague, they, we were both supposed to try and fit some R&D stuff in there too, hmm. uh, but it was really difficult to find time. So it, because innovation is my passion and I did squeeze some work in. Uh, and these proved to be very promising. So the manager management wanted me to focus more on these. And my colleague, he, he had a hard time doing that and didn't really enjoy it. So we kind of tag teamed it and split it up. He did more of the evaluations and I, I did more of the research. And that worked out really well. Um, after probably five, I don't know how long it was, maybe six years there, the research lab right across the street, they had an opening for a tribology section manager. So I thought, wow, this sounds glamorous, an opportunity to climb the ladder. I was managing the metallurgy lab. I had two reports, uh, one that I heard. Again, we did evaluations, failure analysis uh, for all the company's plants, evaluations for the customers, development projects, uh, customers' uh, failures or test runs, whatever. Uh, and I also had management responsibilities to run the lab. 
lots of administrative paperwork. Tell us about that a little bit about what it was like going from a, a research heavy part of it in these R&D areas where you're probably technically solely technically focused to now adding in some of that management, that people management, administrative stuff, because I think that can be a little bit of a change, especially when you're trying to to keep doing some of the technical stuff. But now you have it. You have people, people management on the side. What was that like as you were first getting you know thrown into it a little bit there? Well, it seemed like I was doing a lot more hands on stuff and a lot less thinking. A lot of the analysis were more rote, you know, like, uh, for example, we would do um, crankshaft surface analysis for Ford, GM, Chrysler. And you just, you know, take cut up, cut a piece out, throw it on the SEM, you know, which way is the flap of metal that they when they polished, which way is it running? What's the surface finish? You know, and you pretty much had templates and you had to just kind of crank all this stuff out. There was a lot of that. And that, again, I'm, I'm not a big fan of that, you know, uh, but I got to admit probably 80% of all the jobs I've ever had have been that, you know. Well, I think that's an important distinction to, to emphasize to those listening is that there's a lot of jobs that can be more template style jobs where you're really not thinking of unsolved problems all day. Like, you know, you can go a more technical route. Um, which Bill, you'll, you'll get into, it's kind of what you, you've said you really enjoy where you're thinking, you said it as thinking. And what I'm trying to elaborate that on for people that are listening is thinking of problems that aren't really solved. I mean, you can be thinking of, okay, well, how, how am I going to run these 10 tests today? But if each test is predefined and it's got everything all configured out and you're really just hitting start, making sure everything's technically okay and hitting start, it's a different type of engineering job then you're sitting down in front of a blank piece of paper with a question at the t- with a problem at the top and you're trying to figure out how to solve the problem or the answer to the problem. Oh yeah. Um, and so just to kind of elaborate that for those listening, I think that's what Bill is talking about in terms of what, what he was doing less of. He wasn't doing more of that unknown problem solving. And I, yeah, I, I think that's, that's, it's a different personality type too. I mean, the people that I've met, there are some people that like either one. Some people like a mix. Um, it just, it sounds like Bill, you knew that. How did you, how did you, how did you know you like to solve the, the unknown problems? Well, that's that's kind of the point I'm trying to make through, um, especially through that job. It's the failures that <laughs> teach you a lot about what you like and you don't like. So w- when I was there, again, that that's the kind of work I was doing. So and here I'd set myself up with not good writing skills, right? So I hung in there though, and I had to crank out like 30 reports a month. So that really helped the writing. And I had to get help to, to tackle that skill. Um, but I didn't enjoy the paperwork, didn't enjoy the administrative work. The guys that I hired were better than I was at doing the routine work and report. So I told that to the management, and I encouraged them. And this really threatened my own sense of security. So it was this bittersweet, you know, trying to do this. Uh, but I knew it was the right thing to do. Again, just, you know, following my own values. That report finally ended up taking my job, and uh, but we have a wonderful relationship as a result of it, and it was a really it was a really good thing for everybody. So I also at the time I struggled not to work overtime because you know tons of pressure trying to trying to get all this stuff done, right? But I, I wouldn't, and that didn't help my job performance any. But uh, you know the value of my family and doing God's work was more important to me. Finally, what ended up breaking the camel's back was um, there was some unethical stuff that I started finding out was going on and I was not comfortable with that. Um, so I ended up, I ended up leaving. 
But at that point, I was pretty beaten down. And after that experience, I'd lost a lot of confidence. And I had to do some real soul searching to understand how to choose the next job so that I'd be successful and happy. And I took a good hard look at those experiences and just kept saying, you know, I kind of started to see that thread running through, you know, I was better at doing the research type stuff. I enjoyed doing the research type stuff. So, you know, I said, okay, well, maybe that's the thing to focus on. So I, I specifically looked, in some, looked for something that was R&D uh, type work. So right across the street again, <laughs> another bearing company. Wow, what a street. <laughs> yeah, literally. I mean, backyard across the street, literally. That was uh, NTN, a rolling element bearing company. And this was just a wonderful experience. So this was, to elaborate a little bit more uh, to what we were talking about, it's more of um, they have this problem. Is there a new product we could come up with for them? And that's really a blank sheet of paper. Or um, the other ones I love are – you know, this thing blew up. Why? You know, and get to the root of it. And then usually that means how are we going to fix it? That, but the flip side of that, the reason there's a lot of people that don't like it is there's a lot of pressure because you're somebody says, and, and I'll, I'll go on in some other jobs, um, how that plays out in the research type role. You know, with that, with all that freedom comes somebody's expecting it to work. <laughs> if you've been in that business at all, you know that it's it's almost it almost never works the first time. And if you and the budget type people and the management type people don't usually plan that way. If you said, well, it's going to take three iterations, they're going to say, well, no, it's not going to take three iterations. It's going to take you one. And then you say, you know, most of us have been around this block and say, okay, just just do it. And after it fails. They say, well, what how what are the chances of, of making it work the second time? You say, well, we're we're better. <laughs> but that's that's just the way it is. Yeah, because there's the sci there's the scientist and the engineer. You know, there's the scientist who makes everything perfect. There's the engineer who who doesn't make everything perfect but makes it good enough. And the research engineer is someone who's pushing it closer to the scientist, someone who's who's really I don't going more in it, but you, you never know how long some of those endeavors are going to take, you know, how yeah, it's an unknown problem. How, how long is it going to take? I, I, you don't know. It's not solved. Like if it was, if, if you want to know how long it takes to build the wheel, I could tell you, cause it, we have it. It's, we already know it. But if you want me to tell you how long it's going to take to build something we've never built before, like you can give a good guess, it's an educated guess, but you can never know. And I think that that's that's an interesting part of the research engineer position that's hard is that you're you're in a weird space especially if you're tied to budget um you're in a weird you're in a weird space that you have you have to get comfortable with because it's always going to be there and i think that you're i'm just trying to emphasize your point there bill that if you're if you think you're going to enjoy the research engineer space you're going to have to enjoy this spot where people are constantly kind of trying to push you because it's always going to take longer than people want it to but if, if you really want to do it, that, that, that's just kind of the way it goes. We had a person, for those listening, episode 17, Adam, who, if you listen to the episode, you could tell he really didn't want to be a research person. Every instance he got to, he ran as far away from research. He got put in, I think, at GM in the research group. And he's like, ah, I don't like this. And he, he moved away. So for those listening that are wondering, you know, you know, what does it look like to not have the research engineer mindset? I'd encourage you to listen to that episode as a as a difference. But Bill, it, so it sounds like 
you continue to to do that and you continue to, to build up, you, you know, your thick skin. It, you know, it's, it's hard having a family, but it sounds like your values and thing are really in your previous job really taught you that, no, like these are my values. I'm not going to work overtime. Sorry. If the building's on fire, I got to go home. It's, it's okay. Mm-hmm. I'll come back tomorrow. It's not going to be on fire. Um, or even if it still is on fire, I'll just get a, a fire extinguisher out tomorrow at 8am, but it's five o'clock. Um, and that's, it's hard. It is very, very hard to do that, Very hard, especially when you're a young engineer and you think that in well, it's somewhat true. What you main thing that you have is your time, your, yeah. your time to give. And if you're not given that, then what are you given? And that that's a hard place to be as a young engineer. It's a hard thought to think through. Um, but it, you know, it's good. It's a healthy exercise to go through. And it sounds like you started to do that, Bill. And so, so you're getting into this new role and you're, you're just talking about how, you know, you're starting to get some of this push and it's, it's hard to be researching your, but you, you'd already known, like, these are my values and this is, and I'm, I'm what I want to do. And so I, I think that's, that's awesome. So how long were you at that, that doing that for, I forget the name of the bearing company. Uh, NTN. Okay. okay. The way they worked, which I really liked was they would sit down and say, okay, we think we got a shot at this. Um, here's a problem. Here's a potential product we think we could come up with. We think the first steps are doing this test and this test and this test. So the deliverables are this test will be run and we'll give you a report on the results, which was a wonderfully reasonable way to do it. Uh, they didn't overpromise. It was there were achievable goals. And then we could we could say, yep, looks like we got a good shot. What's the next step at the end of that? And so management knew what they were signing up for. They knew when it was going to end. We had deliverables that we could hit targets to. It it was great. It was just wonderful five six years. But that company ended up getting uh, bought, or they got bought up by a company who already had a research lab. So they basically shut that lab down. So I was looking for something again. And uh, an ironic aside, during the search here, I applied for a professorship at GMI or Kennery. And I figured, well, it's research and development, right? So, you know, along with teaching. And I like doing both, really, because I was a TA in, uh, in college. So they ended up offering me a job. So the same school that wouldn't accept me as a student was now willing to let me teach. So... <laughs> I ended up I ended up turning that down because the average professor was putting in crazy amounts of hours, and there was uh, and there was another hour drive from Ann Arbor up to Flint and back every day. So I said, Nah. Again, the the values for my family and Christian values, the work we were doing. I said, No, nah, that that ain't gonna work. So I ended up landing a job in the advanced development group of an engine emission company called Tentacle. Initially. It was, it was an R&D job, R&D effort. They, they basically hired me and said, we want an electronic exhaust valve. One guy. <laughs> that was one of the ones where it was terribly under, uh, under-resourced. But again, I, I hung in there. I went into work every day and left every day. And it was a joke with everybody. It was like, you know, Bill ain't going to be here after this time. He's gone. But I, I killed myself trying, you know, um, I would, I would give them everything I had for that 40 hours. But, um, so it was, it was crazy taking that pressure and it was difficult times to hold the personal standards, but the people were good. They're good people. You know, they appreciated the effort. 
And it was difficult to see that project fail for lack of resources. I was fearful at times under the pressure of missed goals and, and you know, expectation. Years later, the company did apply significantly more resources to it, probably 10, uh, 10 people, and that project succeeded. And I was blessed to be able to offer guidance to the group that was working and take from the work that I had done years before. But the lesson there was don't be a victim of companies' unrealistic goals. Don't sacrifice your life for, for their unrealistic goals. Because that can look like a lot of things. It can be really hard, right? I mean, that's oh. that's in that's in the meeting if at four o'clock with your director that says, "Hey, you know, what is I need this data by tomorrow morning," and you going, "I can't do that." It you know, it, it's saying things in meetings that's uncomfortable is unfortunately what that looks like, and it's really hard to do, Bill. It's yeah. really hard to do. It really it feels like you're sitting there saying, "Hey, team, I'm here to let you down, letting you down again." Hey, yeah, just me <laughs> letting you down. And it sucks. It really does suck, man. I, I mean, I've been in those meetings where you, you, you know, you have to raise your hand and say the thing you don't want to say. But from what from my experience, and I, you know, I'm, I'm curious as to your thoughts on this. Why I'm bringing it up, you know, like from my experience, it was the better long term route. It's like almost like a little bit of a shorter de- detriment, but people still respected me, and they oh, yeah. knew that when I told them something that I would tell them the bad news if I needed to tell them the bad news. Mm-hmm. And having people around you that do that is valuable. Yeah, I think a couple helpful things. Don't set yourself up for that. When they're sitting there saying, uh, the, the one I used to love was, oh, oh yeah, I, I, I would say, tell us when you can have that done. I don't, I don't have a clue when I can have that done. I don't know what, I don't know how this is going to turn out. Nobody knows how this is going to turn out. This is the first time we've ever tried this, you know, so I can't tell you I'm going to have it. And then, no, okay, just give me, just give me a guess, right? Well, then you find that guess is in paper as a promise. Mm -hmm. As long as you didn't say it, you know, when you really can't commit, don't. You know, if you know you can't deliver, don't do it up front. And when they're asking you to put together things and, and give estimates and they push back and they say, oh, make it shorter, make it shorter. Don't don't set yourself up from the beginning to fail. If you know you can't do it, say it right up front and let them live with that. You know, that can be a hard thing, especially earlier in your career to really get used to, especially if you're if you're new in a job, even like a year in or so. And people are asking you of things. And and if you don't know or they're sending timelines like it's it's always going to come back to that. Like you said, like as soon as it's written down somewhere in meeting notes or an email or something, it's going to be OK, we'll revisit it on that date. Yeah. And if it's not done, you know, there you're going to get called out for that. And so I think it's it's hard when you're first starting to be like, I don't know, but I'll give an estimate and that'll be what it'll be. And hopefully it's good. Um, but kind of like you said, it's, it's almost like if you say, you know, if you don't know, just you can't give an answer. You can't give an you can't give an honest answer that you can be expected to to deliver on. And so it's really important to stand stand your ground early and be known as someone who is willing to do that to stand up for the time and energy you're going to have to put into it and be honest about it with people, even if it even if it doesn't make you look good in the moment early on. That kind of honesty and that that courage to do that will come back to help you later on. The only thing you can really hurt yourself there is is cop in a bad attitude. If you sincerely understand they need to do timing, they need to do budgets, they need to do planning, uh, to, to resent that or to get mad at them about that, that's shooting yourself in the foot. So um, I would. I, I would say, okay, my honest best guess at this is this. And I would say that. My honest best guess. 
but I cannot promise any of this. And I do not know how the tests are going to turn out. This could all get turned up on, on, on its head, you know, after we get the results. And they did respect that. Um, but the thing to keep in mind is if you're really trying your best, what, what else are they going to do? Where are they going to go? If they got some silver bullet that does, if they got some unobtainium in their back pocket that they can sell for 10 cents, they don't need you and they wouldn't, they would be doing this whole effort. So you do the best job you can and you hope there's nobody else out there that's, that's better, you know? And if, if they are, then join that team because that's what will end up happening anyways, you know? So it's like, you know, don't play that game. Give it your honest all and, and realize, look for what they're trying to do to the best job at getting them what they need because, because they're, they're, we're all part of a team, you know? That's awesome. I think we can, so you're at Tenneco, you're, tra- you're transitioning out. Let's talk about that transition out. It sounds like you were doing some reflection again there, um, which it sounds like you're doing at every point you're changing your career, which is great. It's reflection on what I want to do next. Uh, how did the, how did that work? Right. So let's see, uh, went to, went to Tenneco and jumped around a lot. Like I said, I was in the advanced engineering group doing this muffler valve. Then they ended up putting me in, I went from the cold end, which was acoustics to um, hot end, which was designing catalysts and canning, which was basically putting a can around a piece of ceramic, and then all the flow characteristics and stuff around that, and went went into all kinds of, again, management type roles. They tried to put me in management type roles and just said, my, my core personality is I just like challenges. So I didn't care if they if I was doing acoustics cold end or if I was doing metal forming on hot end. It didn't matter to me. You know, if it was a challenge, it was fun. But not management, not people challenges, though, it sounds like. Well, and, and the people, the, the guys that I would, that they would give me, if, if I was going to manage them, we had a great time. But I didn't play, the reason the guys liked to work with me is I didn't play the games of, if they needed somebody to go in and say, this ain't going to work, I would go in and say, this ain't going to work. You know, and... I was trying to just be honest on both sides to say, you know, we really need to do this. If, if the guys were, if it was our fault or if we were screwing up, but at the same time, I would, if they came down with something that wasn't going to work, I, I would kick back and say, we don't, we don't think this is going to work. But my, my psyche <laughs> in all of my jobs, I struggle with pride. I resent the fact that God made me an absent-minded professor. Uh, I'm someone who just can't remember every detail flawlessly, especially rote, routine things, you know, that are just there for management or, you know, you got to check the boxes or it's part of protocol. I have an eye for the technical detail, but I'm farsighted when it comes to man-made formulas that you have to follow, especially as my mind wanders and something like that, as it gets boring. For example, missing meetings. I can, the, the alarm can go off. Five minutes before a meeting, oh, yeah, that, got that meeting in five minutes. And I'll say, I'm, I'm going to get a cup of coffee. and go to get a cup of coffee, and I get sidetracked on the way back. And I end up missing the darn meeting. People end up calling me and sending me texts at meetings just so that they remind me, even though I've got alarms and everything going on. So, you know, I, I get mad at God because it's like I'm continually, you know, battling this. And I'm, I'm like, well, so I'm asking God, why did you make me this way? You know, 
And really, the conclusion I came to is just to understand that dependence on others and the fact that I need other people. And even in your in my career, I found that every single design that I've come up with or we've come up with as a team, it's never been all my ideas. It's always been a, a conglomeration of a bunch of different people's ideas. So getting off, you know, that's a, an important part of my personality that keeps me humble and keeps me in a place where, you know, I need to understand the dependence. Those people at Tenneco were fantastic. My coworkers were my good friends. I bounced around, uh, like I say, in, in management roles, but I always gravitated to innovation, research, and development. And I always ended up back there. And I was, I was always happy doing that work. So at this point, I got hit by uh, an emotional freight train that turned me inside out. My children were grown, and after 29 years of marriage, my wife divorced me. That was the, the hardest thing I've ever gone through in life. I was dealing with being ripped, ripped apart spiritually and emotionally, but also realized that a good part of my uh, lack of joy and peace was from a lack of purpose in life. God showed me that I'd taken for granted having a purpose outside of myself. So now I realized it was important that that was a key ingredient for my, my peace and joy. And he also used this time to deal with a lifelong nemesis, which is this fear. So we've already talked about there's a million different places you can experience that from pressure and all that kind of stuff. And I, I did a good job of living in that all the time because of job security, loss of relationship, fear of failure, lack of intellect, lack of charity, fear of providing for my family, my mistakes, being the absent-minded professor. So for some strange reason, God used this season to find the solution from that pain. And I found, found the only way to deal with that effectively was being in a real and personal relationship with God. And that he showed me how I could trust him, and he was bigger than all these fears. And you cannot believe how big of a difference that made in all those relationships at work. Just, just being more comfortable, just, just accepting the fact he's better than I am, let him do it, you know, or his idea is better. Just, just be the servant and take that idea and make it happen. It made a world of difference in terms of, of how the performance was at work. So at that point, like I said, I needed a purpose and God gave me one. So, and that was also a reason for another career change. <laughs> My first grandchild, uh, Kira, was born with a very uh, serious birth defect and she needs a tremendous amount of care. So when my daughter's family finally, finally settled in an area where they thought, where I thought they'd be for a while, I found a job down here and moved. Tenneco didn't want me to leave. So this was before there was work at home. So they ended up letting me, uh, work, uh, three days of work up there, up there. And I would come down here for the weekends and Monday and Friday. And then I would drive, drive back up to, uh, Grass Lake and, and work for three days. And then I worked from home on Monday and Fridays. And that was that was great. But looking looking back, I realized how God knew exactly what I was made of. And he guided and directed me to the right career with, via loving people in my life. He guided me into uh, he provided the advanced degree when I didn't want to get it because he knew I'd need that degree for those R&D jobs. And my psyche disabilities uh, helped me realize my dependence on others and God. So life is great. I experience a tremendous amount of peace and joy all the, most of the time. And as far as wealth and material possessions, I've never lacked for anything. And I live very comfortably. 
and I feel like I'm the richest man on earth and love my work. So um, that's my story. <laughs> I think it's amazing, Bill, how you took the time to realize that life doesn't revolve around the 40 hours we spend in the office or whatever every week. That there's a bigger picture of all the things that we value in our lives, whether that's faith or family or friends or any other number of things that, that we can choose to identify ourselves as. And I think a lot of people don't necessarily take the time to realize what is most important to them and how that can blend into the the, the career decisions they make of what they're doing, of, of where they're moving, of how they're spending their time, of whether they're choosing to you know, go home at five or stay till 8 p.m. every night. And that's that's an important thing I think everyone needs to if they, if they haven't done it to really think about is is what is what is the purpose of the job I'm doing? Does that fit in with the other vision of how I see myself and what path do I want to be on uh, as I as I go down and use the limited number of days I have in my life? So it's really awesome to hear you 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 how you've gone through that and really let that, you know, kind of bring that that peace and joy to your life in a way that, that provides meaning. I wonder too how many people um because of circumstances they feel they couldn't control or didn't have the courage to try and challenge have lived with something that they're not really happy with. Uh, it just doesn't fit them well. Um, because I, I really believe just, just about everyone has a special talent and gift that, you know, God meant to use in a, in a way that's really meaningful for them and for others. So I, I think it, it's sad if, if they haven't. Right. Well, and I think once the, once the person gets to a point where they're in that position, where they're they're comfortable, where they are, like that exudes in companies like that. I mean, the, the, it's it's exemplified by Teneco being like, Bill, what like what do you want to do? You want to come here three days a week and and, and work from home too? Even when that like, you, I think you'd be surprised once you're, I don't know, once you challenge it, like how accommodating others can be, especially you know if yeah I, I to your point Bill, you like the people may be sitting there scared or worried but if you if you have the confidence and you're, you're able i think you're able to realize that there's a lot of other options and doors open unexpectedly and things work out and but you're also okay if they don't you know if you were to have left and tentacle say hey yeah we're not going to do that you'd you'd have been fine too and it, like i don't know you it's yes. it's it's great to hear how you came to a, a place of acceptance with that you know i think for a lot of Unfortunately, you know, sometimes it's it's hard life events that force us to rethink that. But I mean, I think your example and bring that out to others hopefully has people listening and hopefully they reflect on that as well, too, um, on their life and and what it is they want their life to be and what they want to look like. And I don't know. I, I think that's that's amazing. And um, I think it, it's. It, it brings it, you know, it, it brought you down south, you know, Ohio. And I guess we, we didn't talk about GE, though, and, and how how that all worked out. So you so you ended up. So, yeah, how, how did the transition to the new job go, I guess? How did that all work out? <laughs> yeah, GE is, um, is a heavily regulated field. So uh, I think in the world at large, industry at large lumps um, the medical industry and the aviation industry kind of together in that, in that there's a lot of red tape. I'm not embroiled in the red tape. Uh, as much as a lot of the other groups. I, I do tooling right now. So I, I do um, make the tooling for a very specialized process called inertia welding. Um, and it's, boy, every uh, five-year-old who, who's got who's a gearhead, he just loved this. Our, our latest machine has 16-foot uh, flywheels. So imagine a 16-foot in diameter piece of steel that's six inches thick. And you got three or four of them uh, that you bolt onto a tool that's supposed to hold a part. 
and it's got collets and it's got its teeth digging into that part any way it can to try and handle the torque. And then you take these two pieces, uh, usually a nickel-based superalloy, and and you uh, have a huge hydraulic cylinder that's capable of like five million pounds, and you just jam these two together while those flywheels are spinning. So it's just the coolest crash and burn thing you ever saw in your life. <laughs> but so I do the tooling for that. So the tooling isn't as um, regulated. They don't have their their claws. All the paper pushers don't have their claws in that as much. And I get to to do again the the technical side of that. But there's you can you could look at even the the paper pushing side from how in the world do we uh, guarantee quality when we've only got three pieces to to test or we're going to try a new process and we've only got three pieces to try it on. And then we're supposed to assess how that's going to be reliable so that you're going to jump in a plane and, and go fly in it. So it has even the, the challenge of a really high quality. You can see the technical side of that, you know, statistics and, you know, maybe more advanced um, non-destructive techniques or destructive techniques, you know, whatever. Um, so if you like a challenge and, you know, you can stomach the fact that somebody going to like that it didn't didn't work the first time, um, it's a good place to be. If, if it, you can't stomach that part of it, but you still like the innovation, there's ways of um, a less risky innovation. For example, if you're what I found, if you're in a production plant and you are doing the day to day, not earth shattering type changes. Uh, well, I shouldn't say that. Let's say not ch changes that take tons of money. But a lot of the things I've come up with have just been, well, you know, that that process, I can think of a better way of doing that. So my favorite word is is bailing wire and duct tape. I'll, I'll get cardboard boxes, I'll get bailing wire, I'll get duct tape, and I'll I'll rig up something to try it. And I'll do, and we used to call it skunk works because you just do it on the side. And you can work out pretty much all the details before you, you take it to management and before you have to sign on the dotted line where somebody says, you know, I want this to work. You know, you, you tell me how long it takes, but at the end of that road, I want it to work. So there's less risky ways of doing it. It's just um, you, you try and find that niche. You try and find uh, a place where you can do that. And uh, at the same time, you know, the other 80% might be just doing the grind, you know, because you got to pay the bills and um, they need the work done. But uh, you can find ways to squeeze it in. So to kind of elaborate a little bit more on that, so in in my eyes, there's always these, in, especially in bigger companies, there's like these two tracks, you know, you start as an engineer one, engineer two, and then there's almost a decision point that has to happen for a lot of engineers. If am I going to go down a management track or am I going to go down a technical track? And they all have similar pay level tiers, um, but with different teams, like manager one, manager two, um, you know, senior engineer, technical specialist, chief engineer. There's like these different essentially paths that you could walk. And I think it's a challenge as an engineer to know which path, when you're at the decision point, which 
which way you should go. Um, and so some of the things we've talked about in your episode thus far have been great in, in terms of looking inside and understanding what you like. And it sounds like when you did that, you you really pointed towards the technical track, even though they, they tried to put you on the management track. Sometimes you're like, no, I'm, I'm going to go back over there. And, you know, you, you jump back over and you can go back and forth for those listening. It's not like it's a, a decision that'll change your fate for the rest of your life. You can, you can hop back and forth. Um, but I'm curious um, if you could, in, in the position you are now where you're, you know, you're a ways up the technical track, I guess, talk, talk about what that's, um, I guess, what that's like at GE specifically. Yeah, GE is, is uh, well, I guess it's always true. The, the technical people tend to have, have the answers, but the uh, administrative and the management uh, executive type people make the decisions. So if you get high enough in the technical level, though, uh, the technical uh, chiefs can always play the trump card of uh, you can't do that because it'll hurt the product. So if you the frustrations for a lot of technical people is I got this great idea, but I can't do it. They won't give me the money. You know, they won't they won't um, let me try it or whatever for whatever reason. So that's where a lot of technical people say, well, I'm going to go into that field so that I can make the decisions and I can straighten out, you know, all the wrongs in, in this company. And then when you do that, you find, well, you know, you've got three pages of paperwork to fill out for Joe over there, uh, E-H&S stuff. And, you know, you, you find you don't have the time to do the technical work. So that's, that's the trade-off that you have to find, you know, a, I can see just about every extreme. Um, I'm sure you've seen it. You've seen the person that has zero social skills. They're geniuses. But practically nobody can talk to them. And they're off in their little room, and they just kind of spit stuff out every once in a while and throw it over the wall. And everyone else tries to make sense of it and, and do something with it. And there's a real niche for people that can can really appreciate both sides because – if you are a manager and you're trying to make good decisions, if you can understand the technical, you're much better off and you can much you make much better decisions. So I see people that do kind of both. There's chief engineers. One, one thing that's interesting about GE is <laughs> it, it seems like there's one guy, I mean, the, the classic storytelling, uh, mythical guru that sits up on the top of the mountain. There's like somebody here that's like that. And <laughs> it's so funny because it seems like they they run everything up the totem pole to this one guy. <laughs> you know, he's the guy that's got to make the final say on it. So, I mean, if you're if you're after a head trip, I mean, that's got to be one. But at the same time, it's like would I really want to be the guy that made the decision that, you know, that crash that we had the other day, uh I was the last word. I was the guy that stamped the drawing. I was the you know last one that made the decision there. So that's you know there, there's trade-offs with everything, right? And I can't. Um, I like people, and I like to see people. That's where I've seen a lot of technical people go into management, is just because um, they do. They are respectful people. They're very kind, and and they care about people, and they they respect people. So they tend to be good managers. I mean, that's it's probably the basic ingredient for a manager. 
so they'll tend to go there sometime, you know, maybe because the pay is better or, you know, they think the opportunities are better. Well, that can be one of the hard things. I think one of the disadvantages of this track of like, okay, we have management track and technical track. Like if you look at those diagrams, like I've seen them for a couple of different companies, it's like, okay, you go manager one and then there's like seven levels above that. And you look at the technical track and you're like, okay, there's senior engineer, then there's technical specialist and that's it. There's like this, there's less rungs on the ladder of the technical track than the management track. And people worry about essentially limitation of that. If I go the technical route, am I going to be limited on career growth, whether it's financially or even just um, in terms of say and power or whatever it is that they're, they're looking for? So I think it can be one of the disadvantages. But I think what's interesting about being in a huge, ginormous organization like GE is there's a there's probably a lot more rungs on that technical track. And once you get to the top of it, you can have quite a bit of say, which it can be a double-edged sword to your point. So I, I think that's interesting. You know, so I get my, my, I guess my just quick follow-up question is, do you feel like there is a, do you, do you feel like your career limited by, by saying I'm, I'm going to stay in the technical track? Do you feel like there's like a, you know, a barrier to, to your growth because you're saying that? Well, if, if your um, goal is to make billions of dollars, millions of dollars per year, yeah, I agree with you. You, you ain't going to get that in any technical field. And l- unless you're the the engineering CEO of a company, you you get out and you start your own company and you're extremely technical. I, I do know that seems to be the only place that I know of people that have made ridiculous amounts of money and are still technical. But personally, uh, I find it hard to believe that that's a goal because those millions of dollars ain't going to make you happy. So for me, I, I think I make a ridiculous amount of money. I, I, I wouldn't pay myself the, the money that they pay me. So I really struggle to go there. That, no, that's great. No, I think that's excellent feedback. Cause I, I, you know, from a young engineer, it's a question that I've had. Like it's, it's, I think for young engineers, they look at the, they look at this diagram of millions of millions of wrongs on the management route and millions of wrongs on the technical route. And they go, why would I go the technical route when it looks like there's all the advancement here and you're just a young engineer and you don't know. And what I love is your, your answer is essentially, if you get up the technical route, you're going to be making enough money to be happy. Oh, yeah. If you love the technical route, then you're going to be happy. So yeah, there's maybe more advancement on the management route, but you've lost sight of the goal. If that's what you're, th- you know, you've lost, your direction is probably not right. Cause, because you'll realize that the money yeah. isn't going to make you happiness and you're going to wish yet you would have gone the technical route. So I, what I'm trying to, I guess, explain shortly is like, if you think you want to go the technical route, go the technical route. Yeah. If, if you really feel your talent and your interest is in the technical route, you're going to shoot yourself in the foot going management. Yeah. No, that's a really good point. Yeah, I agree. I think, you know, you don't, yeah, figure out what you want to do and then do that. Um, you know, I guess as, as a follow-up question to that, we've talked about this being in a big organization, Bill, and if you've hinted to it a few times, um, I want to talk a little bit about your perspective on being in a big political organization, pros and cons of that versus being in some of the smaller companies you were in, um, and just kind of some of your reflections being a technical person. So imagine there's a younger engineer who knows they want to be technical and they're trying to decide if they want to work for a small company or a huge company. What advice would you give them? What would you tell them um, to kind of help them decide which size of business they would be best in? I think it's um, in general, it's not 
hard and fast rules, but uh, it's kind of how how much of a stomach you have for even the the paperwork and the mundane and the administrative type stuff. The bigger the company, the more of that you're going to get. Um, more uh, hoops you got to jump through. Right now, to sign into the computer, I've got I've got two identification keys that that measure my body resistance or something. <laughs> I don't know. You know, and it seems like literally every two weeks there's a major change in our email or the HR program or this or you know they've gone from Skype to Teams to you know all within two months. You know. So it's like um, your stomach for, you know, having to, to go through these root, uh, routine type things that aren't, you don't necessarily think are value add. The bigger the company, the more there is of that. Um, the more red tape there is in terms of doing things like doing the career type advancements and going through, you know, getting those and interviewing and, you know, the hoops you have to go through. Um, but at the same time, I guess I've looked at it as, um, they, they have a little bit because of the size, they have a little bit more tolerance for a steady workflow. So I've tend to, I tended to gravitate to them because it was a little bit better. Um, the ups and downs weren't as high, you know, although right now it's not a good time <laughs> for GE, but, um, They've probably had one of their biggest lows they've ever had. So, um, but it's still a lot of difference than if you know you were a fifty-person group or something. You know, I, like uh, that's that's definitely a point is well taken. You know, they they can withstand storms a, a lot better. But in order to withstand the storms, you got to put up with a little bit more paperwork and stuff. And I mean, for those listening, I I had the fortune of working with Bill. Um, you know, in industry on projects, and I think that what's what that looked like for me, you know, I'd, I'd be in meetings with Bill and you'd be like, okay, well, we got to walk from point A to point B. And there'd be, I don't know, whatever, the 3,500 people on the phone call and someone would raise their hand and they'd say, well, but you can't just walk from A to B, Bill. You, you got you to gotta walk from A to C to B because of this. And, you know, you go, okay, well, and then someone said, well, if you're going to walk to C, you got to walk to D and then to C. You know, you, you can't, it's, it, it becomes never, a, I want to just walk from A to B in big companies. There's, there's always other things. And well, you got to check with so-and-so if you're going to try and walk through them C to D, because remember that thing. And like, and, and you're just like, what thing? I just, like, I have no idea what you're talking about. And what, Bill, you always took that with such a grace. I don't know. I mean, we, okay. All right. Just tell me the steps. Okay. I got to walk from, I want to walk from A to B. Someone says I got to walk to C first. Okay. So just tell me the steps. Just tell me what they are. Okay. Here's, here's what I think the steps are. Anyone got any problems? Okay. You know, and you, 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 you just had a great mindset to it. And, you know, from hearing your story and all these things, like I, I, I now see it better how you, you got to that. But um, I think it's just, if, if you're a type of person that when you, you're trying to walk from A to B and if you get sidetracked and people tell you you can't do that and that frustrates you like crazy and you're just going to go insane if that happens a lot, big company, probably not for you because it's going to happen all the time. You got you to, gotta, I don't know, it just, yeah, I'm just trying to laminate for those listening to help you kind of understand what, what that looks like. You need to be able to adjust and take in feedback and that's just how it's going to work in a big organization. Yeah, uh, to, to put a little bit more, uh, maybe uh, describe what, uh, Troy's talking about is uh, we have a, a we have a very established procedure for taking data. 
extremely established. Dedicated, you know, uh, memory system. You have all these hoops to go through and, and challenges and stuff. And um, we had this test that was running, and the, the test would routinely end up with bad data because we had a whole bunch of people that weren't, there wasn't one person responsible. And everyone started doing this, you know, pointing fingers. And uh, Troy and I got together and hired the, the company that he was working for to do one of these tests. And we got the results and, and they said, oh, you can't do this. You can't, you can't do this. This data wasn't taken this way by this person, by that group. You know, it's that kind of thing where you said, but wait a minute, look at, we got, we got good data for the first time in three years. And, and look at how, look at what it's saying. And it's great and everything. And they go, doesn't matter. You know, didn't, you didn't do it our way. And it's like, oh. Mm -hmm. But I think there's a lot of people, Bill, that, you know, they, they would hate life if that was their every day. Meaning if, if they, if they felt like they were making progress and anytime they made progress, they felt like the company was dragging them down for, for whatever reason. And so if I just bring it out for, if you're listening, like that's just something to think about, you know, I think Bill, your mindset allows you to do it. And you, I mean, I'm sure it's still frustrating. I'm not, but um, you know, you've come to terms with that's, that's how it is. And you know, you're part of the, you're part of this system and that's how it works. But I think it's just, yeah, just for those listening, that's just how it works in big companies. You know, there's there's pros and cons. And so, you know, in the show, we just try and elaborate on those for people so that if you're listening, you can you can start to learn and make some decisions and hopefully make a little bit more informed decision the next time you're you're thinking about your next career change. Um, but I think I think with that, that that brings us close to time. We're a little, you know, a little over our normal time. But Bill, great information. Brendan, did you have any last questions? I don't. I think I think I'll just leave it open to Bill. There is there any any parting advice you want to give on on someone you know it's finishing up uh, college or early in their career, um, looking to looking to make a big change. What what's the one piece of advice you'd give them? Well, I think I pretty much covered it. <laughs> I, I I'll tell you, tech uh, is one of my my best memories. You know, definitely uh, all the time there and running around the woods and. Uh, I went there with uh, my roommate that I went to school with. Um, we've we're still the closest friends. He's he's my best friend. So um, it's a wonderful time. Enjoy it. Enjoy enjoy the time out there. <laughs> Even though you're trying, we used to go down to the think tank in uh, Coed Hall, and me and my buddy would be there till you know two in the morning, one two in the morning every every night for the first year until I was completely and totally burnt out. Uh, but you know, if you can get out there and enjoy each other and enjoy the, the surroundings, do it because it's, it's a wonderful place. Yeah. Excellent. Excellent point on the, the network too. Cause you know, I mean, the same, same is true for Brennan. I mean, I don't think we've talked about it in previous episodes, but for those that know Brennan and I, that's, we were, we were best buddies in undergrad. We were up and we were in the, the computing labs till 2am multiple times together, finishing out homework assignments and, those are some of my best memories and that, you know, I, they sucked in the moment, but it's, I don't know. It's one of those <laughs> it was things, the worst right? times. It was the best. <laughs> yeah. Well, I know. Yeah. When life challenges, you know, that's, that's tends to be how it is in, in some ways. Um, so, but Bill, again, you know, thanks so much for being on the show, man. I'm, I'm really glad they were able to connect um, and, and get you on. I think a, a, really a lot of great information for those listening. Um, and I'm, I'm really glad they were able to bring up the technical side and talk a little bit more about the technical track and, 
talk to someone whose mindset is technical track. Um, and I think that's great. I think I'm so happy for you that, that you were able to realize that and make moves towards that in addition to your other life and value goals. Um, I'm, I'm really, really very happy for you for that. And I'm very happy that the listeners got to, got to hear it. So thanks for your time. I really appreciate it. Have a good day. Oh, you too. Good to meet you, Brennan. You too. Thanks, Bill. So two episodes in a row now, we've had people on the show who have been much, they've been later on in their career. Um, it's not someone who's who's new or in the first 10 years, but definitely later on. And I think that's provided an interesting perspective to our conversations. Um, it's been a lot more more reflective, looking back, seeing, uh, looking at all these different things they've done in their career and, and really being able to share that. I think that's, that's provided a lot of value. I've really enjoyed doing that. Yeah, I think it's good. I mean, because it's ultimately we're trying to make decisions now and, you know, you wonder how they're going to propagate. And for a lot of our guests, that's just advice that's you know been a few years old, but it's also good to get advice on big picture things that, and see how it's progressed. Like for example, with, with Bill and his decision to, to just do the 40 hours a week, you know, you might wonder, well, how is a young engineer? Does that work out? He gave some great examples of how he does it and how, like what exactly he does to make that successful. But also we can see that, you know, he's had a great career and, and that's been his mindset and that's okay. So, you know, it's an example of, here's a decision to make, but then it's cool to see how it propagates later into the career. And I think, you know, with, with these more experienced guests, like they, they allow us to see those bigger themes that have been successful for them and proven to them. Um, and I think that's valuable. I totally agree. I think it's interesting to see how their careers have progressed and to see in Bill's case how he had this technical research mindset, but he applied it to a lot of different jobs in various industries. It wasn't just, I'm an automotive researcher. It's, I did this. I worked on on bear, for bearing companies. I worked for exhaust company. I worked for GE now doing tooling. Uh, being able to pl- apply that across many different areas throughout your career. Um, and for us being able to, to hear his experience and see what that's like, being like, you know, just because you do one thing now doesn't mean you have to be stuck in that job or that industry. It can You can follow the, the path you want to be on, whether that's a research path or a production path or whatever that is. Um, and it's important to see that and look back and be like, yeah, people have done it. It may in the moment for you be like, I'm stuck in this hole and I can't get out of it. But you probably can if you realize that you don't have to keep doing that same thing over and over, even if it's just, you know, hopping to a different company or something. Right. Who knows? It may just be right across the street. Look across the street. I guess if you're, yeah, if you're struggling, uh, more, more of the story is maybe just look across the street. See what's there. I don't think it's at my neighbor's house right now, though. Hmm. But well, Okay. Yeah. Po- uh, post-COVID. Pro- po- post-COVID. Think about pre-COVID if you were to look across the street. Because maybe it starts there. Who knows? I, I guess we should have asked him if he just like looked up out of his desk one day and that's how he started his search. <laughs> we can go right to LinkedIn there. or we can just look behind the monitor. Oh, what's that company do? <laughs> Let's do that. Genius. Oh, but hilarious. I'm glad it worked out for Bill. It sounds like it did, which is awesome. So Yeah, it's good stuff. Thanks for, thanks for listening, everybody. H- happy holidays. Merry Christmas. Whatever you choose to celebrate, we're going, in, going into the end of the year. Uh, 2020 it's almost going to be over i think we're all happy about that and and hopefully 21 2021 starts a little better there you go all right see you buddy have a good day bye thanks for listening to this episode of engineer your career with troy bauman and brennan timrack for more information about the show visit our website at eycpodcast.com there you can find show notes for each episode and get in touch with troy and i if you or someone you know are an engineer with an interesting or even not so interesting career journey and would like to be on the show Go on the website, send us a short bio, and we may just invite you to come on and share your story. And finally, if you want to show your support, please rate, review, like, or subscribe to the show on your podcast player of choice.